You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Turn now to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1. Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, and we're going to read together verses 3 through verse 11. What advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? Generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Also the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place, it rises there again. Blowing toward the south and turning toward the north, the wind continues swirling along, and on its circular courses the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done, so there's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, see this, it is new. Already it has existed for ages which were before us. There is no remembrance of earlier things, and also of the latter things which will occur, there will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we are grateful for the lessons that can be learned from the life of Solomon, and we pray that you would help us to learn from this man without ever having to repeat his mistakes. Make us wise enough to learn from the mistakes of others, and we pray that you would be glorified through the preaching and teaching of your word this morning, and that you would edify and equip your people today as we gather around your word. May your spirit be our teacher and your word our guide, we ask in Christ's name. Well, it is good to see that you all came back today after last week's discouraging and depressing sermon. You're back for another uh, weekly dose of discouragement. We are going to get to some encouragement in Ecclesiastes. Not today, but eventually we are going to get to some encouragement in Ecclesiastes. Today we're continuing looking at Solomon's despair as Solomon tried to evaluate life and nature from the perspective of under the sun and not from the vantage point of God's revealed word or God's revealed truth. As Christians, when we speak of purpose or meaning in life or having some significance and trying to understand what life is and having a worldview, we can only do that from the perspective or vantage point of God's Word. We, we need divinely revealed truth in order to tell us things that nature cannot tell us. And so if we try to evaluate nature or try to evaluate life or try to understand why things are the way that they are, how things are moving the way that they are moving, we are destined to failure if, if we try to do this apart from revealed truth apart from Scripture, because God is the one who has the perspective on all of these things. And so if you remove God from that vantage point, from that perspective, and then you just say, without any divine revelation on this subject, I, in my own human wisdom, from my own human perspective, am going to try and make sense out of all of this, it will be utter futility because God's Word is what gives us the insight and understanding that we need. And if we just look to nature... We're hopelessly lost in despair, and that's ultimately where Solomon landed, is in hopeless despair, because he was trying to understand everything apart from God's revealed truth. So as as an unbeliever, unbelievers have no other option but to try and understand life apart from divine uh, of divine truth, because they make no room for any kind of divine truth or or divine person to sort of put his foot into the door and have a say into their life. And so since they are unbelievers in anything supernatural, all they have is this natural realm. And that ultimately leads to the despair that you hear Solomon express in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. 
Now, last week, we looked at verses 4 through 7, which is Solomon examining nature. He is trying to answer this question that he poses in verse 3. What is the advantage or profit to a man in all of his labor that he does under the sun? Why am I here? Why am I work? Why do I work? Why do I go to work? And why do I engage in all of this activity and all of these things? Why do I bother living? What is the advantage that a man is to, that is to be gained for a man under the sun from all of his work? Now, without without asking for God's vantage point on all of that, Solomon turns to nature. And what does he see? He sees the generation coming and toiling and working and a generation going, but the earth remains the same. And although there is the appearance of change, nothing has really changed. And then he sees the sun that comes up and goes down, comes up and goes down, and all this activity and motion, and yet really nothing has really changed. He sees the wind do a whole bunch of work, blowing from the south and then to the north and then to the south and the north again, always circling around, coming back to where it started. All of this activity, noise and bluster, and yet everything appears to change, but nothing really has changed. And then he looks at the water, and the waters fall, roll into the rivers, rivers fall into the sea. The sea is never satisfied, is never full, never says enough. All of these things continue on continually, day after day, week after week, month after month, millennia after millennia, and seemingly to no advantage. Because there's, though things appear to change, they never really change. And after all of the work is done, these things continue to work. And so looking at nature, if I look at nature and I ask myself, what is the advantage to my work that I do under the sun? Using only nature as my standard, I see a bunch of activity and toil, a bunch of work and motion and noise, but nothing to show for it. There's no end. There's no resolution. There's no completion. There's no point at which the, the sun or the rivers or the wind ever say, that's enough. We have finished. We've completed it. And so what is the answer to be gained then if we just look to nature? There is no advantage to your labor under the sun. Now Solomon looked at nature, first of all, to answer that question. And now in verses 8 through 11, Solomon is going to look at humanity and he's going to look at history and we saw last week that in spite of all of our labor and toil, nothing is changed. That's verses 4 to 7. Now verses 8 to 10, in spite of all of our labor and toil, nothing is new. And then in verse 11, in spite of all of our labor and toil, nothing is remembered. Nothing is changed, nothing is new, and nothing is remembered. Boy, that's discouraging, isn't it? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not even going to try and turn it into encouragement because there's just none, none in it. So let's begin with verse 8. Beginning verse 8. All things are wearisome, man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. Now this is connected to what came before in verses 4-7. through Uh, Solomon is pointing here to human experience, and he is saying all these things are wearisome. And the word wearisome means tired or exhausted. It describes something that is worn out, something that is toiled and labored and sort of spent. It's it's wearisome, it's wearied. That's the idea. Uh, What does Solomon mean when he says all things are wearied or spent? Remember that he has just described all of these natural processes. And so I think that when he says that all things are wearisome, he, he intends everything that he's just described in verses 4 to 7. All of these things are tired, right? Generations come and generations go and the earth is, the earth is worn down. The earth is here. It still remains and yet the whole process is really exhausting. And the sun comes up and goes down, comes up and goes down. That's wearisome. Not only seeing these things, but experiencing them and living under this perpetual, seemingly useless and meaningless cycle of life brings me to the point of being wearied. All of these things are wearisome. They weary me out. And all of these things are wearied. Do you remember that Solomon described the sun as panting back to its place, running and hastening and rushing and panting like a runner who is exhausted from his labor and toil? And I think that he is describing their nature. All of these things that continue to happen, they're all tired. They're exhausted. 
They have to be, after thousands of years of doing this nonstop each and every day, the same thing. They have to be exhausted. And so Solomon looks at nature and he sees an exhausted nature. Solomon, living underneath that nature, himself is wearied by it. So much so, he says, that man is not able to tell it. That is Solomon's way of saying, there are no words to describe this. There are no words. You ever see something in the news or see something on Facebook or hear something? And what can you say? There's just there's nothing to say, right? That's Solomon's way of saying that. To the point where man is not able to tell it. Words cannot exhaust this. Words cannot describe this. Words cannot adequately express just how wearisome and taxing and vexing and purposeless the whole thing seems to be. I am at a loss for words, Solomon says. Now all of this monotony and this toil has a parallel in our human experience. That is why in verse 8, Solomon says, the eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. Uh, This monotony and perpetual cycles of life has a parallel in our own human experience. And so he he points us to the eye. Is your eye ever satisfied with seeing things? There ever come a point in your life where you could say, you know, I've seen enough. Really, you could gouge out my eyes. It's no big deal. I can do without my sight. Has there ever come a point in your your life where you say, I'd be happy to lose my hearing today? Uh, Has there ever come a point like that? No, because our eyes are not satisfied with seeing and our ears are not satisfied with hearing. There is, is seemingly woven into the creation, at least as we know it in experience today, an insatiability. And just as the ocean is never satisfied with all of that water running into it, so our ears are never satisfied with all of the noise coming into them. Our eyes are never satisfied with all of the sights that flood them day after day. Because we never wake up and say, I wish I didn't have my sight, or I wish I didn't have my hearing. At least uh, mentally stable people do not do that. There are there are actually people who gouge out their, their eyes because they want to be blind, or they self-identify as blind, and so they make themselves blind. But that's a mental illness. And the natural man, that man in his, his normal sane state, does not ever is not ever satisfied with what he has seen or what he has, has heard. And so there is a connection here, even in our own human experience, to what Solomon has described. Whether he looks at nature, or he looks at humanity, he sees this insatiability. And that should remind us that if we are seeking to understand meaning and purpose and find direction outside of and apart from God, and we just to look at nature, eventually we are never going to be satisfied with what we find apart from God. Because satisfaction cannot be found in this world. That is why contentment is the key and not satisfaction. You cannot be satisfied, but you can make yourself content. And those are two different things. So there is a connection here to the the monotony in our own lives that is described in this passage. And even our experience is somewhat monotonous. Your day-to-day life is somewhat monotonous, isn't it? I mean, really, with, without too much variation, you, you wake up in the morning, you get up, you clean up, you eat, you brush your teeth, you go to work, you come home, relax, you eat, you brush your teeth, and go to bed. Then the next day, what do you do? Yeah, your life is, is very similar to what you read on your shampoo bottle every morning. Wash, rinse, repeat. You do the same thing over and over again. And your weekends are rather monotonous too, aren't they? Because you come to Sunday school, you come to church, you're going to go home this afternoon, you're going to eat, you're going to have a nap, you're going to sit down, maybe watch some preseason football, and then you're going to go to bed, and you're going to wake up and start the other monotony that you just left on Friday all over again tomorrow. It's really encouraging, isn't it? And now sometimes on the weekends, you try and break up the monotony by doing things that are not so monotonous, have a backyard barbecue, invite some people over, go camping, uh, go fishing, go visit a relative, uh, make a day trip or something like that. And then when you want to break up that monotony, you have a backyard barbecue or you go camping or you go fishing or you make a day trip or go visit some relatives and visit some more relatives and make a day trip and go camping and fishing. Even what you do to break up the monotony is what? It's monotonous, isn't it? Exactly. So there is there is built into these cycles of life that we have this insatiable monotony, this insatiable drive for something for something else. 
And a lot of what we pursue is an attempt in our, in our eyes not being satisfied with seeing and our ears not being filled with hearing. A lot of what we experience and do is set to try and break up that monotony, even if for a brief moment. Our eyes not satisfied with seeing because we're always hoping that we will see something more that will be what? Different than what we've already seen. Something that will make the monotony not so monotonous. Something new. And we're hoping that we will hear something that will make the monotony not so monotonous. Something new. So we want to see and we want to hear, hoping that eventually we're going to see or hear something that will break up that monotony and make life somewhat bearable. That's why we are insatiable. We don't want this to be all that there is, and we keep hoping that we will see and hear something that is different. And so our eyes are never satisfied and our ears are never satisfied because that is in itself an expression even of our own heart. And there is, an, there is a, a, a similitude there to the, to the idolatry of the human heart. We crave after and drive after things that are new because we are not content because our hearts are insatiable. And a lot of times it is because of the idolatry that exists in our hearts. So for instance, this is probably describes something similar to your life, at least the first part of this. When you were in school, you thought that once you had graduated from high school, things would be better, things would be different, right? Get out of the monotony of that, get a job, start making money, have a real purpose in life, start doing something, accomplish something, go places, be something. That's what you thought. So then you got out of high school and you got a job, and guess what? It's pretty stinking monotonous, the whole job thing. So you wake up and you've been doing the job for a while, and that gets monotonous, and so you think to yourself, maybe if I just had a spouse, then things would be different and things would be better, and you get a spouse, and then if I just had kids, things would be better and things would be different. So you you get some kids, and and then... Maybe it's the job thing again. Maybe that's what monotonous, because that is pretty monotonous. So maybe I should get a promotion or a transfer or leave this job or do something different. So you, you get a transfer or a promotion or move up a couple floors in the building that you're working in, but that's really still monotonous. So maybe it's that I need a new house. Maybe that's that I need a, a, a new car. Some men think is maybe it's because I need a new wife, right? Different car, different house, different woman with different kids. That'll be different, right? And so you find out that it is different, but guess what? It's a whole new monotony. And so now you've exchanged a new monotony for an old monotony, only to find out that the new monotony is very monotonous, but now you have a a heap load of regret and a heap load of debt to go alongside of it. And that is in itself becomes eventually monotonous. And then many people make the same mistake all over again and think themselves, new wife, new kids, new house, new place, new job. I'll start it all over again. Maybe that will satisfy. And eventually that doesn't satisfy. And many men and women end up trading their monotonies for their monotonies over and over again. And even that becomes monotonous. Just exchanging monotony for monotony becomes monotonous. And men and women make this trek time after time, day after day, year after year, always thinking that if I jump the fence to the greener grass, that will be better only to find out that the greener grass is growing on top of a septic tank. Things are not better. And they have exchanged what they thought was good for something they thought was better, only to find out that it is the exact same thing. Never, and finding themselves in the exact same place, never dealing with the problem of the heart, which is contentment. We can never be satisfied. That is the reality of human nature. But we can be content because we can make ourselves content and we can be content in what God has given to us. And eventually, this is the solution that Solomon comes to later on in the book. Here's a little spoiler uh, warning for you. Eventually, Solomon is going to say, you have a job, you have a wife, you have kids, you can eat and enjoy the fruit of your labor. Be content with these things. That's it. These are the blessings of God. So enjoy these blessings and stop the foolish and stupid pursuit that he pursued in chapter 1 and chapter 2 and enjoy what God has given to you under the sun because this is what He has given to you to bless you. Ultimately, we cannot be satisfied 
but we can be content. And this describes our common human experience. Generally speaking, we don't want to be without our sight. We don't want to be without our hearing. Now, that is not to say that there are some things that our eyes are not full of and our ears are not full of. For instance, there are some things in life that if I never saw them ever again, I would be completely content. My eyes are full of seeing uh, abused children, starving children, violent crime. My eyes are full of those things. My eyes are full of seeing Dallas, New England, and Seattle win Super Bowls. I've had enough of that. I can, if I never see any more of that ever again, I would be completely content. There are certain things that my ears are full of hearing. If I never heard ever again the voice or the names of either one of the two leading presidential candidates, I would be a happy man. Because I would rather gargle shards of glass than listen to either one of them for more than 20 seconds. My ears are full. I never want to hear their names or their voices ever again. Enough is enough. I'm satisfied. But generally speaking, generally speaking, if I lived to be a thousand years old or ten thousand years old, I would never want to lose my sight. I would never want to lose my ears. Because the eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. That's Solomon's observation from humanity. There is built into humanity certain cycles of life. There is built into humanity, just as in nature, not only cycles of life, but this insatiability, this lack of satisfaction, this desire for more and something that is other. And ultimately, I believe that that desire that we have will only be fulfilled in eternity for those who repent and trust Christ for salvation. Ultimately, that is when we will find all of our desires entirely satisfied in its most holy and glorious and righteous and perfect form. But we have to wait for that. In this world, God has not created this to satisfy us. God has created all of this and allowed this to be the way that it is so that we might seek our satisfaction in Him. All right, now Solomon, having looked at humanity, now turns to history in verses 9 and 10. That which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, see this, it is new? Already it has existed for ages which were before us. That's, that's Solomon's look at history. There is, is there anything of which one might say, see this, it is new, already has existed for ages which were before us, because there is nothing new that is under the sun. Now we use that phrase oftentimes, don't we? We, we, we probably have said that. Most of us in this room probably said that at some point or another. There's nothing new under the sun. And when we say that, what we are describing is the fact that we often see and hear things that we have already seen or heard a long time ago, and then it comes a generation of people who think that these things are new and they're really not new, and so we say, well, there's nothing new under the sun. Parents, did your kids say to you the same stupid knock-knock jokes that you said to your parents when you were a kid? They did, right? And now you maybe some of you are hearing your grandparents say the same stupid knock, or your grandchildren say the same stupid knock-knock jokes to your children that your children said to you and that you said to your parents, your parents right? And your grandparents. Why? Because we say there's nothing new under the sun. These things repeat themselves. And now, right now, it's in vogue amongst young people to have their hair grown out long. Ooh, that's new. Actually, that's the 80s, right? And before that, some other era. Or they think that uh, piercing themselves in some odd or creative place, that's something new and rebellious. Uh, well, going out and fighting against the man, they're going to take charge and do that like no other generation has ever done that before. And as parents, we look at that and we say, there's no, nothing new under the sun. Uh, this fall, they're, they're rebooting MacGyver. And Velcro was making a, a back end. Some of you have Velcro on your shoes. I'm glad to see that's back in. Right? They say there's nothing new under the sun. We saw this when we were kids. It's like we're living the 80s all over again. Parachute pants are right around the corner. I know it. Because there's nothing new under the sun. Now that's how we say it. That's what we mean when we say that. But Solomon, and, and prep yourself for this, Solomon means something by this far more depressing and discouraging. 
than how we use it. When Solomon says there's nothing new under the sun, he is saying this. Your eye wants to see more. Your ear wants to see more. But there is nothing more to see. That's it. So if you think that these things will ever be satisfied, ever, he's shutting the door on that. No, there's nothing new to look forward to. Nothing. There's nothing new under the sun. There is nothing that any generation has ever seen or experienced that they can say, see this, it is new. So if you think that you need to see something new or be satisfied by hearing something new, it will never happen because there is nothing new. It has all existed before. All existed before. Now that's discouraging, right? He's shutting the door on any opportunity, on any thought that you might have to be satisfied or satiated in this world under the sun. It cannot happen. There is nothing new under the sun. Now, I want you to understand, and don't, don't miss this, Solomon is expressing something in verse 9 that is not a Christian view of history or the world. And don't miss this. Verse 9, that which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done, so there's nothing new under the sun. You, you can hear the monotony, that which has been is that which will be, that which is is that which was, and you can hear the monotony even how Solomon expresses that, right? It's intended, the language and the rhythm of the, the language is intended to, 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 to create in us that sense of, of cyclical monotony. Um, but verse 9 does not express a Christian view of reality. And this is somewhat troubling for some people because the, it is a pagan view of reality that says there's nothing new under the sun. That, that is more in keeping with paganism than anything Christian. It's pagans who believe. It's a pagan worldview that says there's no beginning to anything. Everything has been always as it was. There was no beginning. And that's a pagan view of reality. And, and it's a pagan view of reality that says there was no beginning. There will be no end. And everything, every timeline, every event, everything just continues circling on as it was. Uh, in some ways, that's kind of uh, uh, reincarnation is wrapped up into that. You live, you die, you live, you die, you live, you die, you live again. And on it goes. And there is this cyclical nature to it. So this is this idea of that history is is not a line, but is a downward spiral of, of overlapping circles that continue to repeat the same events. That's paganism. It is the Christian worldview or a biblical worldview that says history is not secular or circular. History is linear. God spoke it into existence at a point in time in the past. He spoke it into existence for a purpose. And everything is unfolding and happening according to plan. And everything will be resolved and come to completion at the end. And all along this giant multi-thousand year timeline, God is inserting himself into it and doing new things all the time. Because there is an unfolding to history as it is linear and not circular. That's the biblical perspective. Solomon is expressing a pagan perspective to history. When he says that there's nothing new because everything continues in these cycles. Now do you see that? And we can think of all kinds of things that God does that are new. There are a couple of verses where God Himself describes doing new things in history. In Isaiah 43, verse 19, says, Behold, I will do something new. Now it will spring forth. Will you not be aware of it? I will even make a roadway in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. In Numbers 16, verse 30, God uh, Moses says, But if the Lord brings about an entirely new thing and the ground opens its mouth, and swallows them up with all that is theirs, and they descend alive into Sheol, then you will understand that these men have spurned the Lord. And so those are uh, those are both miraculous events that are being described there because the Christian view of history is that God inserts himself into time and space because he is unfolding a plan. And so God is always involved in doing these things, and there are new things. That's the biblical view. The exodus from Egypt, was that a new thing? 
Had it ever happened? Anything like that ever happened before? No, Scripture says that. No God had ever done anything like that for any of His people before that time. And the exodus from Egypt has never happened since. The incarnation of the second person of the Trinity, a new thing or an old thing? That old hat? The second person of the Trinity dying on a cross for the sins of humanity outside of Jerusalem? How many times has that been repeated? How about the resurrection of Christ? Something that you see it happen every week? No, it's a one-time event. All of those things are examples of new things. The, the, even the new covenant and the new testament and the birth of the church. And remember, all of these things that we are experiencing and living in now are going to come to their fullest culmination and fulfillment in the new heavens and the new earth where we live in new bodies and dwell with God forever. God is always doing something new. That's the biblical perspective. So what Solomon says in verse 9 is not only contrary to what Scripture says and affirms regarding history and God's purposes in it, it is also contrary to our own human experience. Don't we experience new things? We do, right? How long have you had a smartphone? Do you remember a time when there wasn't cell phones? You have a smartphone. The last time I preached through Ecclesiastes, there was no such thing as a smartphone. That's new. My cell phone that I had back when I preached through Ecclesiastes the first time was as big as a brick and weighed almost as much. It had, it had rubber buttons on it that you had to push down with a pencil if you really wanted to get, and it was a monochrome, uh, colored screen. You had to pull the antenna out of the top. Does everybody remember those? Not everybody. Some of you are younger. Don't have a clue what I'm talking about. You've seen this in pictures. You had to pull the antenna out of the top of it and the, the range was slightly greater than your scream. Because they were pathetic. Now, now we have things like podcasting and televisions and, and air travel and cars and medical technologies. These things are new. We experience them, don't we? Doesn't Solomon's words in verse 9 even run contrary to human experience? It seems to. And it, but, it's, but yet it is a pagan view of nature. So what do we do with Solomon's understanding of these things? What do we make of Solomon's words? Is he really expressing a pagan view of reality? Let me give you three ways of understanding Solomon here. Any one of these three will work, and I'll tell you which one I think is accurate. Number one, Solomon is wrong. He's just wrong. He has come to a wrong conclusion. And it shouldn't surprise us that a man who decided he's going to evaluate life and everything under the sun, from the perspective under the sun, without God's perspective on any of it, it should not surprise us that he would come to a wrong conclusion. It shouldn't surprise us at all. In fact, that is the value of Ecclesiastes. We get to see the wrong conclusions that Solomon comes to, and we get to identify them and say, see this, it's wrong, and here's why it's wrong. Because of these presuppositions, because of what Solomon was doing, he has come to a wrong conclusion regarding this thing. So Solomon was simply wrong in the conclusion that he came to. Now, by the way, this does not affect our view of inspiration. Not everything that the Bible says is true. Now, before you stone me, hear me out. The Bible records the words of Satan, does it not? When Satan lies, are those words true? No, they are lies. But the Bible accurately, infallibly, inerrantly, and by inspiration records the lies that men and devils told, and it records them infallibly, and what the Bible affirms about those things, namely that they are lies, is true. But the Bible records things that were said that were not true statements or true conclusions. And so it is with Solomon's words here. The Bible by inspiration, Solomon by inspiration, and inerrantly and infallibly so, has recorded for us his wrong conclusion. And Solomon does this throughout the book. There are going to be times when we simply look at Solomon's words and say, again, he, he, he came to a wrong conclusion. I've likened it like this. When I taught through the book of Ecclesiastes with my family a couple years back, 
I came up with this illustration. Solomon is like a man lying down in the mud with face down and his face is buried in the mud and he is observing life and thinking from that vantage point. Every once in a while in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon lifts his head up and gets a clear view of reality as it really is from God's perspective. But then he puts his face right back down in the mud again. And that's what we get in Ecclesiastes is, is the, the, the meanderings and the observations of a man buried in the filth of the mud. And sometimes he comes to very wrong conclusions. Not all of them, but some of them. So that's the first option, that Solomon was wrong in coming to this conclusion. The second option is that Solomon here is describing life and not technology. See, even in Solomon's day, they would have technological advances. Solomon built the temple. That was new. He built his palace. That was new. There were things that happened in Solomon's day, though technology didn't change as quickly back then as it does today. There were still technological advances that Solomon would have been aware of. And so maybe it is that we are to understand Solomon here as, as not describing the advancement of technology or human experiences, but rather these monotonous cycles of nature and life that he has described in verses 4 to 7 and the insatiability of the human heart, that these things are not new. In other words, maybe what Solomon is describing is the elements, the sun, the wind, and the waters mentioned in verses 4 to 7. So is there any, any is there anything of which we can say, see this, it is new? And by that, Solomon means, is there ever a time when the sun comes up in the east and hits about high noon and then heads south? And then going south, almost gets to the rise, and then comes back up and lingers around high noon again and then maybe goes west a bit and then circles around to the north and then sets in the east and comes up in the west the next day. If we saw that, we would say, now see that? That is what? That's new. Or if the wind just stopped blowing everywhere always and there was no more wind ever. That would be new. If the waters ran uphill, the rivers ran uphill, and or if the rivers stopped running and the ocean was full and the rains fell from the sky and did that perpetually, that would be new. But regarding all of these cycles of life, is there anything of which we can say, see this? It's new. Maybe Solomon's just describing those cycles and uh, and life and not technology. Or third, there's a third option. Maybe Solomon, uh, maybe it's true that all of our inventions and technology are merely innovations and improvements on what has come before. This, I think, is a good way of, of looking at that. There, Let's assume that by nothing, Solomon means nothing and that that is truly all-encompassing, that there is absolutely nothing under the sun that is new. There is a sense in which that is absolutely true. There's a sense in which it is true that everything that we think of as an advancement or something new is nothing more than an innovation or a change in form, but not substance, on something that has been for a long period of time. For instance, there was once a time when we recorded information on stone tablets. Not we as in me, because I'm not that old, but there was a time when we as humanity recorded information on stone tablets. And then we did clay tablets because they were cheaper and easier to make and much lighter to carry around. And then the uh, clay tablets were eventually replaced by uh, parchments and then animal skins, which were more durable, and those were eventually collected into books. And the books were collected into uh, libraries, and, and uh, all of those are just ways of storing and recording information. And then we had microfish. Do you remember that invention? lasted as long as the 8-track. Like oh, two weeks later, they'd replaced it with a, a floppy disk, which was then replaced by a harder disk, which was still called a floppy disk, but it wasn't floppy, and it was much smaller. And those became hard drives, and hard drives became thumb drives, and thumb drives became the Internet, and then now the cloud. All of these things have changed. But what are we doing? Recording and storing information. That's all we're doing. It's the same thing we've been doing for millennia. So the form has changed, but the substance is not. Uh, we've communicated with each other for millennia. We used to do smoke signals or semaphore or a sealed letter by a courier, and then that turned into the 
Pony Express, which became the Postal Service. And, and then we did faxing where we would write out a letter to somebody and fax it to them. And wow, it was quicker. Things changed, right? And then faxing became email and now we have texting. All that's changed, but we're still doing what? It's communicating with each other. Same thing we've been doing for millennia. So the form has changed, but the substance of it has not. How many of you remember life without a microwave oven? I do. Some of you have no idea what that light. Man, there's even some some older folks here that I, I thought were more towards my age, but apparently are not, who don't remember life without a microwave oven. You've always had it. Well, back when, do you remember back when the first microwave ovens came out? How new that was, and our family had to have one. Remember how enormous those things were? They were huge. They were as big as our television sets, right? And back then we had big television sets, not because we needed or wanted to see a big screen. There was really nothing to see on the big screen of the television set, but these little tiny screens were encased in these massive wooden cabinets. And they did that so that you wouldn't damage the TV when you pounded on the side or the top of it to get the screen to stop flipping like that. And we didn't, we weren't able to skip over commercials back in those days. We actually, we wanted the commercials to come on so that we had a few minutes to go outside and turn the antenna ever so slightly to try and dial in that perfect to try dial in that perfect picture, but it was never per- perfect, wasn't it? And as it turns out, all we did as kids was sit around and do the same things that our grandparents and our parents had did, sit there and listen to the box, but our television was nothing more than really a fancy radio with a white fuzzy screen on the front of it. And nothing had changed, but they were enormous. So going back to the microwave, you would go over to somebody's house and they'd be putting on an addition, and you would say, what are you doing? We're getting the microwave. So it was either ask one of the children to move out, or we put on an addition to the house. So we decided to add an addition to the house, Microwave is being delivered next week. They were enormous. So what do we do with microwaves? We heat water and we cook food. And we've been doing that for how long? Millennia. The form of it has changed. The substance of what we do, it never changes. So every innovation and everything that we we think is new to us, really only in form is new, but we've really been doing the same thing as humans that we have been doing forever. We're still sinners. We're still reprobates. We're still in need of grace. We still make the same mistakes. We're still fools. We still live. We get married. We have kids. We eat. We drink. We sleep. We work. We die. And that's life. And there is nothing new under the sun. And if you are thinking that your eyes or your ears are going to see or hear something that is new, you are you are you are placing your faith in a vain imagination because there will be nothing new that will change any of that. So, yes, we have technology. As Alistair Begg once said, yeah, we put a man on the moon, but once he got there, he had nothing to do but to stare back at the earth. Right? And just the whole thing seemed rather futile. Get to the moon, look up. There's the earth. That's where I was at. That's where I'm going back. And really, nothing at all has changed. What is my view of the three? I think that Solomon is wrong. I think he's just come to a wrong conclusion, and that's what we are to see. That's what we are to understand. I think it's also possible that he is, I mean, any one of these three is possible, but I just think Solomon is wrong. He's just come to the wrong conclusion, and it is recorded for us so that we might learn from his wrong conclusion and how looking at the world the way that he did brought him to that disparity, to that despair. And we are to not make the exact same mistake that Solomon made. So, in spite of all of the activity that we do under the sun, nothing has changed. All of the activity, nothing is new. And third, nothing will be remembered. Verse 11, there is no remembrance of earlier things. And also of the latter things which will occur, there will be for them no remembrance among those who will still, who will come later still. If you ever look at something and say, well, that's new. Solomon is here saying, you only say that is new because you don't know the past. It's because you're so forgetful. 
if, if you had a, a perfect and infallible understanding of what has come before, you would never be able to say, see this, that is new. And the only reason that you might think that something is new is because you have forgotten what has come before. And so there will be for us no remembrance of the former things which were before, because as, as the more that time passes, the more we forget what has already taken place. And with each passing day, more of history is lost forever and more is forgotten. You have forgotten more about what has happened to you and what you have done and what you have seen and what you have read than you ever remember. You understand that? We all have. So much of what has come before us has been forgotten. And this is part of the despair. And Solomon is saying that there will be for those who come after us still nothing more. We, we forget those who were before. And the longer we live, the more these people slip out of our memories and the less that we think of them. I gave you the quote last week from Mark Twain. He said, you will be lamented for an hour and forgotten forever. That is, the, that is the end of all men. Lamented for an hour and forgotten forever. We are like people who are walking across the top of a sand dune, dune and the minute we pull our feet out of the sand, you can see our footprints are there. They're clearly visible. The impact we have had. But as time passes and the winds blow, blow a little bit, it slowly covers up the footprints to the point where eventually you can't even tell that anybody walked across a sand dune at all. That is us. We're just walking across sand dunes. And eventually our footprints will be lost to history and everyone will, everyone will forget us and everything that we have ever done. Douglas O'Donnell writes this, As the hourglass of human history is turned over, all our accomplishments are slowly buried in the sands of time. That's some perspective for you. Do you know who was president 100 years ago? Probably very few of you here could name that right off the top of your head. I can't. I can't do it. I didn't even bother looking it up. Do you know who was president 150 years ago? Very few people here would know that. Do you know who, do you know who won the Super Bowl in 1981? Just off the top of your head? the 49ers. I care. It was the 49ers. <laughs> Somebody said, who cares? They beat the Bengals 26-21. Joe Montana was the MVP. I don't remember anybody else on that team. But unless you're a Niners fan or some football fanatic freak who knows all of those details and has photographic memory for them, you're not going to recall that. And the, and the more that time passes, the less I'm going to remember of those events. And as hot and bothered as we get over this election cycle, pretty soon it'll be a distant memory. And we won't even remember three or four of the 17 people who ran for 19 people who ran for the highest office in the land. We're not going to remember it. And Lord hasten the day when that happens. And we don't remember this. It'll, it'll all be forgotten. It, it is all washed away in the sands of time. And we will not be remembered any more than we remember those who came before. This is the necessary perspective that we need. This is the benefit of it. We need to keep that in mind. All of our bluster and our noise and our toil, thinking that everything we have put our hands to has made this great and lasting impact, Really, in terms of, in just material terms, in terms of this world, and looking at it from under the sun, it doesn't count for anything. That's why we need a divine perspective on these things. That's why we need a divine perspective. Another person wrote this: When you die, there will be a funeral. You may have 25 or 2,000 people attend. I want to stop there for just a second. I did a funeral one time where there was four people in the in the funeral home. Four people. That is sad, right? It's even sadder when you realize that me and the funeral director accounted for two of those four people. There were two people who were in the funeral home. I did a graveside service where it was me and the mortician. Two people showed up for it. Now, by the grace of God, there will be more people at our funerals than there were at those two. But it was a solemn reminder of how quickly we can be forgotten and neglected. So back to the quote. 
When you die, there will be a funeral. You may have 25 or 2,000 people attend, but you know what they'll do after the funeral? They'll catch lunch and have a great old time together. Then they'll hurry back to work because somebody was covering for them while they took the morning off. That night, they'll go home to their families, watch a sitcom rerun, forget all about you, your memorial by morning. Materially speaking, life is short and then you die. You will lose everything you own to the next generation. Your children will rent out your house, purge your possessions, and spend your inheritance. Ultimately, you will be a distant memory at a Thanksgiving meal. And you know this to be true. The more Thanksgiving's past, the more distant will be your memory. Because they will think of you and talk of you less and less each year. I'm not trying to depress you. I'm just trying to get you to see the perspective of somebody who analyzes life under the sun. We're going to answer this question, what is the benefit and the advantage to all of my work with which I labor under the sun? If I look at nature, there is no profit. If I just look at humanity and what we do and the insatiability of it, there's no profit. And if I look to history and what it has shown regarding those who have labored under the sun, I have to come to the conclusion there is no profit. If I look at nature and humanity and history, apart from God's perspective, and then I try and answer the question, to what advantage do I work under the sun? There's only one answer to that question. From man's perspective, from under the sun, apart from God's vantage point, it is all entirely vanity of vanities, futility and uselessness, emptinessness and meaninglessness. That is the conclusion. Now, I happen to believe in God and believe in the truth of Scripture, and the Christian worldview, not because it makes me feel better about this futility, but because it answers the questions that cannot be answered by life out under the sun. In other words, I don't believe what I believe about Scripture and heaven and hell and reality and eternity and God and and reward and punishment. I don't believe those things just because they make me feel better about my despair. They give me some fantasy to believe in to make me feel better. That's not why I do that. I believe these things because they are true and because they are revealed. And ultimately, only God's Word and God's vantage point can answer those fundamental questions. Ultimately, only God's Word can make sense of these realities. Without them, we are nothing. With them, it makes sense. All of it makes sense. And that is an evidence to us that it is true. Because no man can truly live in a worldview that is entirely devoid of without God. Otherwise, you will be just like Ernest Hemingway and come to the end of your nihilism and you will blow your brains out with a shotgun in a cabin in Idaho somewhere. That will be your end. Why? Because Ernest Hemingway lived out the fruits of his worldview entirely to the nth degree. Ultimately, he came to the conclusion there is no meaning to any of it. But as Christians, we know and believe that there is because we don't, again, view just life from under the sun. That's not our only perspective. We have God's perspective. So we know there's meaning and purpose. And that is given to us in the person of Christ. It is given to us in God's Word. And we know that Ultimately, all of these things will come to pass exactly as God has said that they will, and we will see His hand in all of it. So let us pray together. Our gracious Father, we thank You for the encouragement that we have from Your Word. Though these things are tough for us to understand and to see, we know that ultimately this is where we are led without a trust and confident faith in You. We thank You that You are the God who has created all of these things and written history for us. We thank You that it is not aimless or purposeless. Thank You that You are working out Your eternal plan for the glory of your name and the good of your people. And we know that it is not meaningless because you are the one who gives it all meaning. So give us wisdom and grace to evaluate all of life and all of our activities from your vantage point, from the perspective of your word. Make us wise in this regard, we pray in Christ's name.
Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.